everybody. Welcome to the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Glad to have you with us here today. Uh, really been looking forward to talking to my good buddy Will Buxton here this afternoon. Will is without a doubt the uh, preeminent pit road reporter um, when it comes to Formula One racing around the world. And he has recently written this book right here, My Greatest Defeat, Stories of Hardship and Hope from Motor Racing's Finest Heroes. And it's a great book. It's a very interesting book. And Will joins us on the show today. Will, how are you doing over there in England this afternoon? I'm very good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. And I'm sure uh, your New Year is going to quickly turn into a racing year here real soon. <laughs> your break is just about done, isn't it? Yeah, it, it always does. You get home, you spend a week of sleep, and then it's Christmas. And then it's car launches, and then it's testing, and then you're in Australia, and before you know it, it's Abu Dhabi, and it's Christmas again. Oh, <laughs> knock it off. You guys in the F1 world lead such a glamorous life, right? Isn't that, isn't that what we're all supposed to think? I, yes, it's what you're supposed to think. Um, <laughs> but no, it's going to be great. 22 races this year. Well, you know, give or take coronavirus exclusion. But um, 22 races at the moment, the most busy season in Formula 1 history, it's going to be a cracker. You know, that that's you, you mentioned the coronavirus, and I know you're, you're half kidding when you say that, but in, in reality, those are some of the things that, uh, and we're going to get into this in a minute, um, that people don't think about. Some of the challenges you have when it comes to traveling the globe. I know for myself, when it comes to the Supercross season, and we're doing... Uh, 18, uh, 17 races in 18 weeks and you're crisscrossing the country and you're, you're trapped in that airplane tube in the sky and you know, everybody's breathing the same air and is you're going from hot to cold to hot to cold and all this. And you're just trying not to yeah. catch the flu. Right. Um, Basically. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. Your body's in a constant state of, it's, it's almost in limbo for the whole year as is your sort of mental state because you're never sure what time zone you're in you're constantly trying to avoid getting ill so you get to that final race final week of the season and when you get home you get the worst cold <laughs> it's like the whole year has just been waiting for that week um but you just try and stave it off really until december yeah so i mean i only have to deal with a three-hour time change at the worst uh going from say charlotte to the west coast uh you three hours must seem like ah, that's a no-brainer you're dealing at times with changing of a day almost. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Oh, you know, it's it kind of comes with age. Yeah, I don't, I don't, it's not as bad as it used to be, let's put it that way. Um, the flight to Australia, we managed to kind of cut in half. In fact, most of these flights when we're flying east, we cut in half by flying via Dubai. And so then you can figure out when your flight's going to land. And so you either sleep the first leg or you sleep the second leg. So you try and get there on time. Interesting. Yeah, those are some of the challenges. All right, let's 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 talk about this great book. And you can find this book everywhere. And the folks at uh, it's Evro, right? The publishers you worked with on this book? It is, yeah, yeah. Uh, the thing I found interesting about it is race car drivers and racing in general, sports for that matter, is usually all about man's greatest achievements and accomplishments and here's a book about defeat and 
not necessarily uh, losing the race, but as you get into the book, it's it's about hardships and loss and and a lot of different things that human beings go through. Um, what made you go in that direction as opposed to, you know, the greatest victories of F1 drivers, for example? You know, it's it's really strange. I was on one of many flights, and I caught the documentary all about Ford and Ferraris back over the over the years, which is quite pressing at the moment. Yeah. Ford Ferraris up for best move. It's a great great film. But I totally remembered at that point the best stories in our game, in 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 any fact, often are born from. But they're born from defeat. How do you pick yourself back up? How do you keep swinging? You know, how do you get up off the mat and 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 win from the point of being knocked down? Um, so I wanted to talk to drivers about the race that broke their heart. You no, know, when they fled every lap and the engine is gone, have to go. Yeah, how do they deal with that kind of point? And I thought this is a great idea for a book. This is wonderful. <laughs> Actually, a racing driver that I really respect said, look, I don't quite want to talk about that because it makes it seem like I feel sorry for myself. You know, racing isn't the be-all and end-all. And I don't want people looking at me going, oh, no, you lost the race. for you. <laughs> he said, if you could rework it, then I'd love to be part of something along those lines. And so I said, okay, cool. Go back to the drawing board, have another think. But the next day, I had an interview with Nicky Lauder. And as it turned out, it, it was sadly one of the, the last long-form mm. interviews that Ricky did. Um, but I sort of went to this interview and sat down in front of him and just said, what was the worst thing that ever happened to you? Uh, expecting him to talk about you know, the, the, the Nürburgring accident sure. and the fire and coming back from that. And it was actually when he ran louder air and they lost the plane over Thailand. Yeah. And everyone was killed. And he headed up the investigation into the crash and he fought Boeing, fought tooth and nail to clear the name of his pilot because he knew that something had gone wrong with the plane. Um, eventually it was proven that something had gone wrong with the plane, which now can't ever go wrong with the plane again. And that was all because of Nicky's dogged, determined, you know, what Nicky was like. You know, he, he got a bone between his teeth and he wouldn't let it go. And, and, and that was Nicky. And that, he said, was his worst moment. He went there. Every funeral, he was on constant speed dial for any of the families of the people in that plane that, that lost their lives. That he made it his personal mission to clear the names of his, of his pilots. And from that point, I realized that while the people I would talk to would be my great heroes from motor racing, I realized that their story probably wouldn't be about racing. And as it turned out, they were about very human things. They were about, it could affect us all. But yeah. we often don't talk about it. Yeah. Um, and it showed that I think under the helmet, under the visor, under the racing suit, these guys are they're just people, you know, they're human. And uh, it was a it was an amazing journey to, to hear from them. And these great heroes of mine, certain people open up about things they maybe hadn't talked about. Yeah, so you mentioned like the Nicky Lauda story, yeah, the Nürburgring story, you would have figured that's a no brainer, that's the one he's gonna talk about. Uh, which was the one that surprised you the most? 
There are a few, actually. What was just, what was quite, there were a couple of interviews I did with guys that I really didn't know. So Bobby Unser, I'd never met before. Um, Jeff Gordon, I'd met a few times, but, but I didn't know him, know him. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, I'd never met before. And it was really with the guys that I didn't know how open they were with me. Rick Mears is a great example. was yeah. really, really open. So they were surprising in a really positive way that they were very open and, and put their faith and their trust in me. Um, I think Jeff's one was a real surprise for me because we got to the end and we were both quite emotional about it. And he said, I know why I'm emotional, but why are you emotional? <laughs> because with the exceptions of the four Winston Cup, Jeff, you and I have had a very similar life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and for those that haven't read the book yet, for, for Jeff's story, it's about his marriage and, and his personal life and the impact uh, his first marriage had on his life uh, and his relationship with yeah. his family and his stepfather and, and his mom and all that. And it certainly uh, is not something that Jeff talks a lot about. Those of us that are good friends with him no. lived through it with him, um, but it's not something he talks a lot about, but he does talk about it. In my greatest defeat, uh, the Will Buxton's uh, recent book. The other thing I wanted to know his, man, his manager actually, his manager was so annoyed because he'd just written his autobiography and he was like, damn it, why didn't he keep this for the book? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I've read Jeff's book too, and you're right, he didn't necessarily go into deep dive detail in there, did he? Uh, but he did, <laughs> he did go a little bit further with you, and, and I think that's. That's one of those things that's a credit to you in that he felt comfortable at the time, right? And that's what, well, well, but listen, as a fellow journalist, that's, that's what it's all about, right? You have to develop that confidence in, in who you're interviewing or talking with, um, that they're willing to open up to you that way and, and give, give that story. Uh, and Jeff apparently did that day. And uh, you were the lucky one to, to get it out of him. And, and it's a great part, a great chapter uh, in your book. You know, one of the things um, I was thinking about as I was going through this is that because it is such a different topic of conversation, um, racing takes and it gives, right? And you see that throughout this book because there is a lot of story of heartbreak and hardship of loss tragically. Um, for some of these these men. And that give and take is such polar opposites, right? The ultimate highs and the ultimate lows. Um, did it change your perspective at all on motor racing and, and how it can impact one's life if you get so deeply involved in it the way we all have? Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing, actually. And it comes at a time when... Particularly in the UK and and I, I think around the world, really, you know, as men, we're being told that it's okay to open up and to talk about the things that, you know, for for maybe the older generations they didn't didn't talk about, which was their you know, their feelings or their emotions, or if they were struggling from a, a mental health perspective, that actually it's okay to talk about it. You know, we think we, if we we walk down the street and we sprain our ankle, and a week later it still hurts, we go and see the doctor. But if we're got something you know in our head that's not working right for us and, and we can't get past it we're just supposed to deal with it you know man up be a man about it um why, well why wouldn't you go and see somebody about about that 
it's the most sort of used muscle in your body because it's constantly active. Your brain has got to be a point at which it, you know, gets stressed. So, um, you know, racing and racing drivers, I've always known, are singular-minded and motivated by, obviously, their success at the expense of all else and can be very selfish in that pursuit of glory. But what surprised me was how they then reflected back on their lives and, and or even how they dealt with things at the time, whether they had consciously put their emotions to by or whether it had just happened as a matter of course to be in a racing driver. Um, because as, as racers, you know, if you screw up a corner, you miss the apex, you can't think about that. You've got to be concentrating on your next breaking point in your next corner, otherwise you'll screw that one up as well. And, and there's a lot of damage that can be done. That's how you approach life. You don't deal with the things that you've gone through. Well, then you don't have the tools to deal with them if they occur again. How did how how do you as a basic driver in the racing world deal with being a human being in the real world? And that's the delight of it. Interesting, interesting. We're talking with Will Buxton, author of My Greatest Defeat, renowned F1 pit lane reporter. We're going to be right back with more with Will here on the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. And in fact, holding the complete engine treatment from Lucas Oil right here. If you have any issues with your engine, put this baby in there and I promise you it's going to run a lot better. We'll be right back. There is less than one hundredth of an inch of motor oil protecting your car's engine. Friction and heat causes engine oil to experience thermal breakdown, weakening its ability to protect the engine and its parts. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer is specially formulated to resist thermal breakdown, protect vital engine parts, and extend the life of your engine. It also stops smoking, knocking, and oil consumption in worn engines. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer. Keep that engine alive. I can work in 14 different states. I have world-class facilities. I get to work in an air-conditioned and heated shop. I have great paid health care. I get a tool allowance. There's an educational allowance as well. Yeah, career growth opportunities are amazing. This is a great career opportunity for the ladies as well. I get to work for a great company and brand in Hendrick. With a variety of dealerships nationwide, you can become part of a great team. Apply today at workathendrick.com. Welcome back to the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Of course, we want to encourage you to stop by Speedsport.com, our website, and subscribe to Speedsport. We've been around for 85 years. That's even longer than Will Button's been on pit road in F1. Uh, and if you want to know everything that's happening in the world of motorsports, Speedsport will take you there. Will Buxton has been covering uh, F1 for how many years now, Will? Don't because when when I get asked that question, I have to answer it, and then I realize that I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> <laughs> None of us Nearly are. Twenty years. Nearly twenty years now. Well, but you you did it with with us at Speed Channel, and you did it at NBCSN. Yeah. And where where will we find you this year as the season gets ready to get underway? 
So I'm back with Formula One uh, as their digital presenter for a third year. So on F1 TV and all of the social media content that they provide through their YouTube, Instagram, Twitter channel. Uh, I'll be back on the Netflix Drive to Survive series for season two as well. That gets its premiere certainly. Actually, um, we get a special showing tomorrow. Um, but I think it launches middle to the end of the month on Netflix. Oh, you listen, I'm going to stop you right there because that Drive to Survive series is fantastic. And I think I think that maybe has done more for F1's growth in the U.S. than anything it's done in recent years, because I, you know, as you and I both do, we travel so many different motorsports events. I've had more people talk to me about that who were not fans of F1 that started watching F1 because they got an inside look at an individual team or a driver and suddenly became a fan. The biggest thing we all want, the biggest thing we all want is we want Mercedes and we want Ferrari. And are we going to get that this year? Well, here's the funny thing. I think Mercedes and Ferrari not being a part of season one ended up being what made it successful. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Because if they'd been there, they would have, probably concentrated on the championship fight and right. Lewis and Vettel and all that. But not having them, that's a search for the other stories. And so they found these great human interest stories. They found John Steiner, you know, and yeah, they yeah. found um, uh, you know, Max and Daniel and all of the stories and all the stuff that, that wouldn't have propped the surface. Yeah, and limited access to Charlotte before you became this amazing thing, you know, um, so they actually did them a favor. But, but, but I'm in the same boat. I've had both people saying either I never watched Formula One before or I'd fallen out of love with Formula One and that Netflix show brought me back. Yeah. So will you be back on pit road or what, what position will you be uh, at? Which microphone will you be holding? I will be holding the F1 microphone. I will be not in pit lane. Um, I will be up in the commentary box for a little bit. Uh, that's certainly the plan at the moment for the practice sessions. Um, but I'll be down doing the interviews after qualifying, after the race that I've been doing for the last few years. And uh, yeah, just, just just still loving it, still enjoying it, and, and getting to go out to, to everyone now, um, you know, not just the U.S., which was which was wonderful, and we, you know, I, I speak to Steve and, and Hobbo and me all the time, and we we miss doing doing F one and the, the incredibly loyal fans that there were of, and there are of the sport. That's great. Um, but yeah, I, I get to sort of talk to the whole world now, which is mad. Which means you get to sell the greatest, my greatest defeat to everybody around the world, as we're showing the book here once again, written by Will Buxton, and in this book, Will, uh, sadly. Uh, human loss, uh, the loss of life is a big part of this. Um, and, yeah. it, and it's kind of interesting um, because it's, you know, Bobby Unser talking about the loss of his brother or, uh, you know, Mario dealing with the loss of Ronnie Peterson, a teammate, that sort of thing. That's all part of this as well. Did you, did you find that a little bit different with these drivers and, and how it impacts them um, when it is the loss of somebody close to them and they still have to go out there and compete. Yes. It, it's very much the, how do you get through it? How do you get past it? 
and Stuart and and Emma Fittipaldi talking about it, but the, the losses that they'd experienced in their careers, um, and actually for, for both of them, um, you know, talking about when Jochen Rint was killed at Monza, and how Jackie was in a flood of tears and pulled his helmet on and actually ran the fastest lap he'd ever run at Monza in the immediate aftermath. But for Emma, it was a similar story because um, Jochen had told him that morning that he wanted Emma to replace him in his Formula 2 team for the next season. You know, and three hours later, Jochen's, Jochen's dead. Yeah. Um, but the one that really surprised me the most was Dario. Because yeah. We talked about Dan Weldon, but, but, but it was the, 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 the conversations about Greg Moore that really, uh, really hit me and really impacted she was sitting in this little cafe in London and Dario was in absolute floods of tears and just talked through it, everything it felt and he didn't realise it at the time but he'd taken a big hit in of his head in a, in a testing crash and so he wasn't processing the grief because he had a brain injury but he, uh, he didn't realise that he had it. So mm. all of these things were compounded and we got to the end of, of that and sort of had a big hug and he said, I didn't know how much I needed to get this out, how much I needed mm. to actually cry about this because I haven't, I haven't talked about it in ages. So that was a, an amazing one. Greg Moore had a huge impact on so many people. It's it's incredible uh, what Greg meant to so many in, in the sport. Yeah. Um, I think the greatest quote that was in in your book was Jackie Stewart saying that racing drivers are weird animals um that is re- really spot on in so many ways if you're close to the sport and it doesn't matter which part of the sport you're in you see that do, do you agree with that statement and and do you see any other athletes you've ever come across as weird of an animal as as a racing car driver no None, because they they almost have to suspend who they are as people when they get in the car. You know, you know, I spend a lot of time with Daniel Ricciardo, who we see as being this very jovial, happy, uh, doesn't take anything serious guy, always a colonist. And yet, when he pulls that helmet off, the smile almost is wiped off his face as the uh, you know the chin piece of the helmet. Sort of closes down over, over, over his. He's a completely different character than he is out of the car. Sebastian Vettel is, is another prime example. He can do things in a racing car, and not good things. You know, when he he loses his rack, when the, when the red mist descends, and he you know, tries to drive Lewis off the track in Baku, or he ignored the team orders in Malaysia, or in Russia last year with with Lewis. Mm-hmm. And then he gets out of the car and he saves the head what was going on there. And it almost can't remember that he'd done the things. He certainly can't admit to it because this morally guided person out of the car almost can't recognize the, the person that he had to become in the car in order to win. Interesting stuff. That's weird. Yeah, yeah, very weird. Very weird for sure. Uh, Not to make this book sound like it's a complete downer, because it's not. Because I think when you... Well, that's that's, that's it, yeah. Yeah, when you you see the title, you go, okay, it's all about, you know, losing. But it's really not. In a lot of ways, the book is about 
overcoming adversity, isn't it? So when it yeah. when you yeah. look I, at it I, that I, way, um, was there one story of overcoming adversity that jumped out at you? Oh boy, yeah, Ari Lassner, uh was one of the most emotional discussions that I had for the book, and really paved the way that a lot of the book read. Um, you know what I wanted to do, and you know, I spoke about it at the top about we're in you know, a period in which it's okay for men to talk about struggles that they have and things they've not been able to talk about before. And what I wanted with this book is for people to read the stories of their heroes and maybe to recognize something that they've experienced in their own life in the words of their heroes. And then if their heroes could admit to being fragile um, and weak and it not being a bad thing, then it would allow them to talk about it with their friends, with their family, because, hey, look, Ari Vatnan, Jackie Stewart, Jimmy Johnson, Jeff Gordon, Sebastian Loeb, Damon Hill, Alan Pross, whoever it might be, they can talk about it. They can they can admit these things and it doesn't make them any less of a man, but doesn't change the fact that they are a world champion. Yeah. That they, they can talk about these things. So to your question, Ari Vatnan had a horrendous accident and his body was essentially a crunched up ball of paper uh, in Argentina, Argentine rally uh, accident. And he had lost so much blood that he had to have transfusion after transfusion after transfusion. And in his convalescence, he descended into a very deep depression and he couldn't pull himself out of it. And at this point, he reads an article in about the death of Rock Hudson. It was one of the first big celebrity deaths from AIDS. And Ari read up on AIDS and the HIV virus and and wanted to know everything about it and convinced himself that he had it, that he had contracted HIV through one of the blood transfusions that he'd had in Argentina. And that not only did he have it, but that he'd managed to transmit it to his children and his wife, and they were all going to die. He was to the point where he was ready to commit suicide. And he pulled himself back. And, you know, it's the, the, the strength of the human mind to, in the first instance, take you to that place. But the knowledge afterwards that you needed such a strong mind to create that, that you actually held the strength to pull yourself out of it. Yeah. But as he said, it's, it's the phrase, you know, beauty in the eye of the world. We use that a lot. But it means that what you see is beautiful, someone else might not. And the same is true for mental health, whether it's depression or anything else. Somebody can tell you that all the blessings in the world, but until you see it, with your own eyes, don't recognize it. And that's what Ari had. And the convinced of this diagnosis until the point at which he could see the light and the reality of what was really real rather than what his mind was done. And it was a fascinating, yeah. fascinating talk. Incredible. The great rally driver, Ari Vontanen. Um Okay, so you, you get into this. And obviously you're hearing about all these incredible stories and how, how these, these drivers pulled through all of this, like Ari did. Um, did it, 
cause you to reflect on your own life at all? Because we all have that moment of greatest defeat or biggest challenge. Did it uh, impact how you reflected upon things you've had to overcome? Yeah, very much, actually. It, it, it helped to give me some peace of mind over things I've, I've been through. Um, and in talking to my heroes about these things and realized that I wasn't the only person that had struggled with, 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 with certain things, um, then yeah, it, was, it was very, very positive for me. Um, you know, I, I have struggled in my life with uh, elements of, of my mental health. It, it, it doesn't seem like it. I'm always very bubbly and very happy in front of the camera, but it's one of those weird things where, you know, those of us who sort of struggle with anxiety and self-doubt tend to throw ourselves into the most public of domains where we are. Yes. <laughs> we sort of open criticism <laughs> from the whole world. <laughs> so, um, yeah... Really useful, you know, and to talk to people, and that's it's such a starting point for people on the road to understanding and uh, acknowledging uh, getting through that the, the hardship is just talking, and the, the, the way the book is written is what what I didn't want was for me to put my stamp on the stories. I wanted everybody that reads it to be able to take their own conclusions. From it. And so it's very much written as the conversations. And I wanted people who read it to be able to sit with us and to take their own conclusions from it, not details, tell them how they should think about it, but for them to look at it and go, God, yeah, you know what? That, that really resonates with me, actually. And I've been there and I've experienced that. That means something to me. Yeah. It'll, all, it'll all make a difference to everybody. Uh, not every story will mean something. Every story will resonate. But then, if there's one story and one passage from one story that resonates with each reader and goes, "Actually, I can see myself in that," then great. Yeah. That's 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 why I that's why I wrote it. Interesting. All right, my greatest defeat: stories of hardship and hope from motor racing's finest heroes. You can uh, find it at Evro Publishing, uh, and I guess wherever you get your books, Amazon. Uh, and wherever else it might be. We're going to be right back with a little bit more with Will Buxton. We're going to find out all about the glamour of F1 and how fantastic it is, right? Maybe, maybe not. Will will tell us when we come back right after this with more of the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. As your power steering pump ages, seal leaks may occur, causing the power steering system to lose fluid. Your power steering system may also develop an annoying squeal, and the steering may become more difficult to handle. By using Lucas Power Steering Stop Leak, you will stop the seal leaks, reduce slack in rack and pinion, eliminate the squeals and hard spots in your power steering system. It is guaranteed to stop seal leaks or your money back. Lucas Power Steering Stop Leak. It works. We might be a tick over 80 years old, but we have no thoughts on slowing down, and who said reinventing yourself isn't fun? The all-new Speedsport.com is here. New layout, new images, new video, and all the late-breaking news you expect from America's Motorsports Authority. We know you love sprints, midgets, late models, and everything else that gets dirty. Plus, we've got all your pavement series covered, too. The all-new Speedsport.com. You know, for guys who really love racing. 
Welcome back to the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. We're talking about uh, F1 now with author Will Buxton and famed world-renowned because he's seen all over the globe when he's covering Formula One. Will Buxton joining us. Uh, Will, what's the biggest challenge in covering Formula One? Oh, that's a big question. Um, what's the... Not annoying people. <laughs> okay. I can see that. That's really difficult. Okay. Particularly in this world now with social media and yeah. all that, it's really easy to send a tweet or something, which, which is perfectly innocent, but is taken the wrong way. Um, or that somebody takes umbrage with, and that, that's, that's quite hard to, to uh, sort of navigate. Now. And it's changed, you know, it's changed what we do and what you and I do, sure. you know, as journalists, as reporters, as, you know, in the whole media world, social media has changed everything. Um, and it's really easy to get it wrong. It's really, really hard to get it right all the time. That's interesting. I didn't think you were going to come up with that one, but I, I can see why you would. Uh, who's the toughest F1 interview ever? Oh, Nico Rosberg. Why? Because he saw it as a fight. Ah. He didn't like being on the back foot. He had to be in control of the situation. So if he felt that the questions went to his liking, he would be an absolute nightmare to try and put you off your step. Interesting. So that he would have control of the situation. He would have control of the interview. But what it did was it made him look like an absolute... Well, I don't want to be rude, but it, made, it, didn't, it didn't make him look as good as it could, let's just say that. Okay, okay. Uh, toughest part of living the F1 season? Well, um, not being at home, not seeing your, your friends and your family and uh, missing birthday. Um, you know, my little girl's 10. Uh, if I've been traveling for, for, for all years for their life. And yeah. So that's, you know, it's a very real sacrifice. Yeah. Um, but the job is amazing, don't get me wrong. The job is, is sure. incredible. Um, sure. But, uh, yeah, as the number of races increased uh, to now, to, you know, when I started it was 16, basically, and now it's 20. Um, there is a breaking point for everybody in the sport at every they say, you know what, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, and it is a great sport, and it is a, a real blessing, um, and it is an amazing thing to be a part of. But uh, you, you, you miss your, your, your family friends. Yeah, totally understand that. Uh, so look, I mean, F1 is all about glamour. We've seen the pictures. We've seen the video. I mean, they that's their thing, right? They hype up the glamour, no matter where you are in the world. Glamour is a part of it. Yep. So I know you've had some pretty good perks in your day of traveling this F1 <laughs> circus you're a part of. I want to know what's the most glamorous thing you've ever done in your F1 broadcasting career. Oh, boy. In my broadcasting career. Yeah, well, or you just, anywhere, anything to do with F1. What's what was it, you know? skiing somewhere in the Alps at a Ferrari launch? Was it, I don't know, some party you went to well, in Monaco? What was it? You know what? They're, they're, they read all throw parties in their early years where they would spend literally millions of dollars on a, on a one-night party. And they were 
they were something. They really were something. Um, I think when Steinmetz Diamond threw a party, uh, when they saw Jaguar at the Monaco Grand Prix many years ago, that was quite a that was quite a swanky party. That was pretty good. Um, but if I'm thinking, oh, you know what? It's all been black. You can't say that any party in Monaco isn't traditional. Um, they're all just. It, it, they all kind of seem like a bit of a dream when you look back on them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think being flown to South Africa to do a two-speeder Minardi race for Nelson Mandela's charity. And um, there were concerts associated with it, and we went, travelled all around Johannesburg, going to Townsend. I think we went to Soweto while we were there. Uh, that was, I mean, that wasn't necessarily glamorous in its entirety, yeah. but the whole sort of part of being there and being a part of that, I felt very, very lucky, very, very fortunate. Yeah, you, you just don't see those on a sprint car tour, I'm just telling you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you just don't see that. All right, what's what's the best life on the road story you got? I'm sure there's been a funny moment or two, uh, maybe something you, you were forced to try to eat somewhere that you hadn't had experience with before? I think, um, I think when we all got stuck in China with the Icelandic volcano, ah. uh, and it was essentially planes, trains, and automobiles, how would we get home? And the stories that came out about that were amazing because somebody tried to go the wrong way around because it's a direct route wouldn't work. So they ended up taking a flight, I think, to Malaysia and then getting a train across Asia. And then, I mean, it was, it was mad. And, and the hilarious thing was, I think they only got home about 12 hours before they had to get on a plane to go to the next race. Oh, <laughs> man. Like 10 days. Oh, man. Crazy. Okay. You know, the other thing about the other thing about Formula One, not only do they do glamour really well, they do the soap opera really well. Um, you know, not just on race weekend, but Monday to the next Thursday or Friday, when you, when you load in at the next event, the drama of F1 is, is epic as, as we saw in the series that you were talking about on Netflix, which we're all looking forward to again. Um, how is it that they do that? How is how much of that was Bernie pulling puppet strings back in the day as opposed to what it is now? Uh, do you know what? It's a lot more tranquil than the last two years, and that's that's very noticeable in in the ballot. Um, I think I think Bernie likes to keep everybody on. He likes to keep a little bit of of intrigue, get a little bit of suspicion there, because you know if everybody was suspicious towards each other, then he ultimately held the control. He, he was the puppet, um, and it was a soap opera. As a journalist, it was great fun because yeah. you had all of these voices bubbling around. You had and you had Max. You had you know, F1 or FOM as it was then, and at the FIA, you had all the teams and where they're going to have a breakaway championship. Um, it, was, it was great times, and, and intrigued to, to be a young jobbing journalist in those years was, was fascinating. 
Uh, Lewis Hamilton, he's at what, six championships now? Uh, how do you rate Lewis and give me your Mount Rushmore of F1 drivers? Who are the top four? Overall, oh, not, not just, not just is... now, but, you know, top four overall. Of all time, okay. Um, well, I mean, Lewis is, is, is without doubt the best of his generation. Is he the best of all time? Look, we know it's almost impossible to compare drivers from different eras because the technology, the, uh, the, 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 the competition that they have, the, yeah, everything about it is, is, is different from one decade to the next. It's almost impossible. But he has such natural skills, such a natural ability. He has he has something which not a lot of other drivers do, which is the ability to look inside himself and draw something proved out every single week. Even if he doesn't have a rival on track, he'll make himself rival mm-hmm. so that he competes with himself to find another level. Um, and, and I don't think we've seen the best from it yet. And that's terrifying because he is beyond brilliant at the Mount Rushmore, I don't know. How many, how many places am I allowed? Am I limited to four? four? You get four. Okay. Top okay. Four. Um, I might give you a fifth just because, but you got to give me four. I mean, because he was my hero as a kid. Yeah. I think Lewis goes up there. And then. You know, you'd be, if you if you go on the on the simple basis, then you go with Jim Clark and you go with Fangio. You didn't but put then Schumacher that misses on there. Out Mario and no, 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 no. I, I put those four up there. Wow. Okay. Okay. But then, but then you see, but then that means you miss out Mario. Yeah. Who's ultimately the greatest of all time because you could put that guy in a in a shopping trolley and keep making yep. it go fast. No doubt. And Sterling Moss, who like Mario could could sit in anything and make that thing win. So, why, why are uh, you why are you not putting Schumacher up there? <sighs> I mean the guy's got seven titles? I know, but are you just I'm, not a stats I, guy or you thought it was more car than driver? Car was a huge element of it, and obviously Michael developed that car, and Michael made yeah. made that that team what it what it what it is. See, that's the difficulty with only giving me four. Mm. Would I say that Michael was better than Jim Clark? And it's also the difficulty with, with comparing drivers across generations. Sure, it's so hard. It's yeah, so hard. Yeah, um, because because if I if I if I if I take Lewis out of the mix. And having already said that I think that there is definitely of his generation and possibly of all time, one of if not the greatest, mm-hmm. and he has to go up there. But then if I put Michael in, then I have to take out, what, Senna? And I'm, no, I'm not yeah, taking Senna think, out. No, you but can't then do, do that. do I replace Clark or do I replace Fangio? It's an impossible question. Yeah, it really is. You just have to do. Yeah, but it's great bench racing, as we say over here in the States, right? It, it, there is no right Who's answer. Yours? Who's yours? There is no right answer, but uh, and the fact that F1 has such a long history uh, makes it very difficult, yeah. too. It's like trying to say who are the five greatest Indy 500 winners, right, for the same, for the same reason. Okay, so that, that brings me to my last question for you, then. Uh, if you ever get off the crazy train that is the Formula One circus and you want to settle down to a nice tour here in the U.S., what is the one racing series in the United States you wish you could cover – 
from beginning to end, not just one race, but a whole season. IndyCar has my heart. I, I've loved it my whole life. And when I was with NBC, I had the, the absolute honor and joy of getting out to a couple of IndyCar races to report for NBC. And I I still love it. I think it's in one of its richest veins, the quality of the lineup, the post racing. Uh, it, it's so good. So, and I can't wait to see where IndyCar goes with the captain in charge, you know? Yep. Such an exciting period. Um, yeah, and, and and that's what I do. I, I adore it. Yeah, it's it's a great series. Well, Will, listen, thank you so much for joining us. The book, again, is called My Greatest Defeat, Stories of Hardship and Hope from Motor Racing's Finest Heroes. And you can find it wherever you get books or reach out to the folks at Eve Rope Publishing. Well, thank you. Uh, we look forward to oh, another pleasure, season mate. of you on the mic with Formula One. Thank you so much. It's been a joy to talk again. Okay, my friend. We'll see you soon down the road. Thanks for listening and joining us here on the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil.